Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me encourage you, if you want to read along, uh, Acts 17 is where we'll be. Uh, or just listen. Just listen to the story as it's told, as, uh, as Luke has written it down to us. These ancient words that have a, um, a meaning and a teaching for us. Before we read, let's, um, <clears throat> let's give thanks and let's ask God to bless our, our time together in His Word. Father, we do believe that words were preserved. That in the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelled among us. And that Your Son Jesus came and He preached a message. He shared a message of salvation. And in that living Word, Your desire for all of us was revealed. And Father, we see the power of the cross and we see the power of the resurrection. And we believe that that living Word was exalted and He now rules. And His Spirit still empowers this Word. His Spirit still empowers our hearts and our minds. So that in the reading of Your Word... We are blessed, we are uplifted, we are convicted. And Father, I pray that Your Word will have its way with us so that we may be shaped into the kind of people that You want us to be. And Lord, before we say Amen, we do not ask that lightly. Because we know that sometimes the work of Your Word on our souls, the work of Your Word on our lives... It can be painful. It can be tough. But we believe that it is all a type of spiritual surgery, a type of spiritual training that heads towards a perfection, a completion, so that we become more like the people you always imagined we would be. So with that kind of humility and with that kind of understanding, we ask for this, Father, And it's in the name of Jesus, the living Word, that we pray. And if we agree, we say, Amen. Well, Acts 17 is a tale of two synagogues. We start out with Paul's journey in Thessalonica. When they had passed, and we're talking about Paul and his traveling companions, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue in that city. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained and proved to them that Christ had to suffer and had to rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, 
saying, there's another king, one called Jesus. Now when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. And so they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Now as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness. They examined the Scriptures every day, every day, to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God over in Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained at Berea. And the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join Paul as soon as possible. It's a tale of two synagogues, and the two synagogues are in the, in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea which is in Macedonia, north of Greece, not far from Bulgaria, where we have friends worshiping there today in the Renaissance Church of Christ. Thessalonica would be the the, the natural city to visit for Paul as it's on the major roadway going through Macedonia. But Berea is not on that roadway. In fact, it's off the beaten path. And the only reason that Paul ends up in Berea is because of the riot that takes place in Thessalonica. The two synagogues here, and there's a synagogue in both of these towns. After the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, from Judea, uh, some 500 years before this, they relocated to different parts of the known world. And wherever they would relocate, they would gather together and they would create an assembly. And that assembly would be known as a synagogue, a coming together, a a meeting place. That would be the fellowship of God's people in that city. So Paul would go and meet with the people who shared the same background. They had the same history, had the same heritage. They read the same scriptures as he did. Because Paul had news. Paul is here in Macedonia because the Spirit of God kept him from going up here to the north and instead said, you need to head this way over to Macedonia. So he's there to help, just like the Spirit of Jesus had directed him. And you might wonder, if if Paul's on this Spirit of Jesus-led journey, why all this negative reaction then? Why all this problem? Did Paul just not get his strategy right? Did he not do enough planning? Maybe he didn't go to the right Christian college. You know, maybe he skipped all of his classes. He's not reading the right books. What happened? Well, Paul's going to the synagogue as is his custom. Somebody might criticize him there and say, you know, that's his first mistake. I mean, if he's going out to plant churches, then why is he going to the synagogues? I mean, this is a Christian thing, right? Not a Jewish thing, right? No, wrong. That kind of reveals... Our presuppositions. Keep in mind that Paul and Silas, these men come out of a Jewish heritage. They believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who also 
came out of a Jewish heritage. Read the genealogies. has a lineage that he can trace back to Abraham. Kind of gets broken there, though, with Joseph and Mary since he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But still, he resides in that family descended from Abraham. He's a Jew in Nazareth, operative in Jerusalem. So all of this is taking place in that nation that they're God's people. They've read that they've since Abraham and since Moses gave them the law, they've been reading that scripture and keeping those covenants and over the centuries. And so Paul is going to go to the synagogue because he's going to think these are going to be the first people who are going to understand like me, even though it took me a while, even though it took God's intervention, but they're going to understand this. Paul goes to the synagogue because it's the assembly of God's people. These are the people that we read about in the Old Testament. They've got the covenants. If you say Abraham, they know who you're talking about. If you talk about Moses, they know the story. If you talk about King David and the covenants to King David and the throne on Jerusalem, they know it. If you talk about the exile to Babylon, they remember that. They know what you're talking about. And they have had these traditions passed down so they understand certain categories like Messiah and Savior and King. They get it. So it makes sense to go to the synagogue first. Go find the people who could understand this. And then Paul's thinking, maybe they'll go through the same experience that I did. I didn't get it at first. But now I witnessed the risen Jesus. So let's go share with God's people. And what he has is, he has news. He has news. He has something new. There's something. He's not just going there for a Bible study. Although he does study Scripture. But he's going there with news, with information, that the long-promised Messiah has come. You see, in the days of Jesus, in the days of Paul, the synagogues were hopeful that a day would come where the Messiah, which means the Anointed One, the the heir to King David's throne, this, this great rescuer, liberator, freedom fighter, he would come to earth and restore the glory of God's kingdom on earth. Paul knows, as do the other apostles, that that Messiah has indeed come. That that deliverer, that liberator, that giver of freedom, that new king, he has come. Although it didn't happen in the earthly way they expected. But a closer examination of Scripture shows you that yes, the cross was part of the plan. And the cross was not the final word, but the resurrection responded to the cross. So that now that king is exalted and there's a kingdom, but it's a kingdom greater than any kingdom on this earth. So Paul is going to these synagogues to tell them, listen, there is news. It's good news. It's a word about the Messiah. I'm here to share it with you. How else are they going to get it? This is the first century after all. He's not going to post this on Facebook. It's not going to show up on CNN. He has to go and preach the Word, and the Word's going to get out. And he's going to share this message, but he also wants them to understand that there's some substance to it, and so he's going to show them in Scriptures. When he arrives in Thessalonica, he is there for nearly a month. Three Sabbaths. That's three weeks at minimum. 
And he spends that time in the synagogue as they are looking at Scripture. And he's showing them that from Scripture, everything that happened to Jesus of Nazareth in Jerusalem fulfills Scripture. And it points to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the expected Messiah. And the reaction in Thessalonica is rather interesting. If we compare the reaction of the two synagogues, you'll notice a few things. In Thessalonica, there were some Jews who were convinced. They believed. They accepted what Paul said. Paul persuaded them. Okay? In other words, he put forth, he actually laid out. The word is, he set out on the table. He put out on the table all of his proofs, all of his, all of his arguments. Just laid it all out there. We might say, we might use the expression, he put all of his cards on the table. Wasn't keeping anything from them. He wasn't being tricky. He wasn't being deceitful. Here it is. And some of them said, this makes sense. And they accepted it. Now, any of these synagogues in a city in Macedonia would have, along with those of Jewish heritage, you would also have those of Greek heritage. It stood to reason. There's probably going to be some intermarriage. There might even be some converts. But you're going to have some prominent Greek people. You're going to have some Greek people. It's interesting that Luke says you had people who were actually prominent, influential people in those cities. And in Thessalonica, there are some Jews and there are some Greeks who are convinced of what Paul is saying. But there's another group who are not convinced. And it's not just a difference of opinion with them. With them, they have to go into the town and they find what the NIV calls the bad characters. Uh, in Greek, they're literally called the, the, the marketplace people. I think maybe what you'd call them today would be like mall rats or something like that. They're, you know, they're, they're, we might even call them losers, okay? I mean, they're just, they're just hanging around. They've got nothing better to do. You know, they're just looking for something. Hey, you guys want to start a riot? Why not? You know, a little action around here. But they're actually available for whatever you want. They're kind of professional protesters. You know, you just get them on your side. And so they go down there and they stir them up and they start a riot. And they're looking for Paul and Silas. Now, think about it. Ask yourself, what is it that they heard? What is it that was so repulsive to them that it would cause them not just to disagree but to become so defensive that they would go out and incite a mob. What is so threatening about what Paul says? You think about that. We're going to come back to that. Luke says that they're jealous. The word could also be translated zealous, meaning that they're, they're zealots. They're not really thinking about this. They just know what they want to know, and they don't want anyone changing their mind ever. And this is so threatening to them that they're going to go out and they're going to find Paul and Silas. And they're going to do what mobs do. They're going to make life miserable for them. Well, they can't find him. So they find the man who's showing them hospitality, Jason. Jason is one of these converts. He's showing them hospitality. If you can't find the guy that you're after, then you're going to find the guy who's on his side. And this becomes kind of a, a witch hunt in Thessalonica. Let's go get him. Let's drag him in. And then... They offer up the charges. Now this is the part that's a bit mystifying. Of all of the things that they got out of this, they got out of the message, these men 
are causing trouble throughout the world. They're troublemakers. That's not true. The message that they deliver causes people like this mob to create trouble. They have just, they, they have just indicted themselves. They're causing trouble. Why? Because they say things and people like us get upset and we go find a mob in the marketplace with all the losers. It's their fault. <laughs> They've just indicted themselves because they can't control their own emotions. But furthermore, they say they say, they're saying that there's another king other than Caesar, which means they're accusing Paul and Silas of treason. They're accusing Paul and Silas of sedition. This is a rebel movement. Paul is actually trying to show them that it's much more than that, that that's not it at all. So they're kind of trumping up some charges against them. It's because of that that Paul and Silas are taken away to Berea. Berea is off the beaten path just to hide out. And they go to the synagogue there. And the the synagogue in Berea responds to the same message. But instead of being defensive, they open their minds. They consider it. They examine it. Paul lays all of his cards on the table and they look at the cards. Paul puts everything out there and they consider it. Now, it is possible that the Bereans could have examined what Paul said. You've got to think, they go into this not just saying, oh, whatever he says, we'll have to accept it. They go into it skeptical. They go into it critical. They go into it open-minded, but that doesn't mean that they go into it naïve. They look at what Paul has put on the table, they consider it, and they say, this makes sense. This believes. Paul had to be offering some sort of rational, sensible, spiritual message because there were people in Thessalonica and there are people in Berea who received the message. In Berea, we're told by Luke that they receive it with readiness, with eagerness. In other words, if you receive this message, it's not just enough to say, well, how about that? It's not like Paul showed up, wrote a formula on the chalkboard and said, well, my goodness, X really does equal four. I hadn't thought about that. That's an interesting theory. Man, Paul, you keep this around and, uh, you know, next thing you know, you'll be coming up with E equals MC squared. This is really neat stuff, Paul. No, Paul is putting the kind of truth out there that if they consider it, it means the world will change because we will change. Remember that Paul himself is at first antagonistic to the gospel. The message that Jesus of Nazareth, who hung on a tree, which should mean that he is cursed, that he could be the Son of God, it seemed blasphemous to Paul. And those who would preach it, it seems blasphemous that, that those who received it could go on their way accepting this. And so Paul actually set out to execute to arrest people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And it's because of his encounter with Jesus of Nazareth that that's all changed. Paul knows that when you accept that reality, the world has to change. So you can't take this lightly. When the Bereans understand what Paul has put on the table for them, they get it. They get it. They recognize that this means... Things have got to change. So not only do they believe it, which we tend to think of belief as something that happens between our ears. Yeah, I believe it. But are you going to buy into it? 
You know, there's that old story about belief and, and accepting belief. You, you've probably heard this, but if you haven't, then this is your first time to hear this. Merry Christmas. Okay, and, uh, you know, there's the, there's the old guy who sets up the, uh, the tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he says, I'm the great tightrope walker. I'm going to walk across the tightrope across Niagara Falls. And everybody's like, yay, this is going to be great. Even if he falls off, it'll be entertaining. And so he goes across, and then he comes back to the other side, and everybody says, yay, you did it. And he says, how many of you believe I can do it again? We believe you can do it again. And so he sets off across the tightrope, and he comes back. Yay, see, we believed you could do it again. He goes, that's right. Now, how many of you believe I can do it another time? They say, yes, we believe you can do it another time. How many of you want to ride on my shoulders? Nobody says anything. It's one thing to believe, it's another thing to act on that belief. The Bereans act on that belief. They're eager, they are willing, Luke says. They embrace it. They know the change that it's going to occur. Meanwhile, the Thessalonians are so agitated that when news reaches them of the reaction of the Bereans, they can't leave it alone. Isn't it enough that they've run them out of Thessalonica? Hey, now they're down there in Berea. That's too close to home. They gather the posse to go down there to stop this. And Paul moves on to Athens. What's going on here? I mean, what's really different about these two synagogues? Being synagogues, they would have both been founded on Jewish principles. The founders of the synagogues would have been people from Jewish heritage. Some of them believed in Thessalonica. Many more of them believed in Berea. So they've got, they've got that alike. I mean, if you're looking for the variable, they're all Macedonians. Thessalonica and Berea are both Macedonian towns. So the culture is going to be relatively the same. They are both a mix of Jews and Greeks. This isn't the sort of thing where the Jews get, or the Jews don't get it, and the Greeks do. I mean, there's always in both cases there's a mix of people who receive it. Paul doesn't change up his study or his approach or his strategy. It's the same message. It's the same scriptures. He has one message. In fact, when you go on over into Acts 17 and look at the message that he preaches in Athens, Athens is different because it's a very different culture. It's a very different group. He cannot quote Scripture in Athens because they wouldn't know where he's coming from, but he doesn't change the message. It still includes the resurrection. And that causes some of the very reasonable people in Athens to scoff. But he won't sacrifice the integrity of the message. The resurrection is part of it. So here he is in Thessalonica, in Berea, using the same Scriptures, reading the same message. I ask you, what is different? According to Luke, Luke's statement, the difference is in verse 11. Now, these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word he uses there for noble means that they were of, um, well, you know, they were of noble birth. That's, that's literally what it means. Uh, it means that they would have been born into a higher class, literally. But that's not the way this phrase is used. Okay? It's like our term, gentleman. You know, if, a, if a young man does something very nice, someone might say, oh, well, you know, you're quite the young gentleman. Okay? Literally, the word gentleman means a landowner. Okay? 
So when you're calling, you know, five-year-old young men who have good manners gentlemen, you're literally calling them landowners. The only land they may own is whatever dirt is stuck between their fingernails, okay? So, I mean, you know, that's, that's it. But we know that that term gentleman means more than, I mean, it used to be used that way. The characteristics and the manners and the behavior of someone who was in that class of landowners in ancient times has carried over so that now the word has something to do with character. This is the way this word works. To say that someone is noble has nothing to do with their pedigree. It has to do with their character. It has to do with their attitude. It has to do with their ability to receive ideas, consider them, and to act on them appropriately. It means that they were open-minded. It means that they were receptive. It means that they had better character than the Thessalonians. Now consider that. There's no need in Berea because they're more noble. There's no need to be threatened by Paul's message. They could have just out and out disagreed with Paul. But they have confidence that God's truth will win out. So they're non-anxious. They're open-minded. They have better manners about the whole thing. Well, you always reach a point in a sermon where you have to ask the question, so what? Because we want to go beyond a Bible study and say, what does this ancient word mean for us? Let's make it a tale of three synagogues. What about our synagogue? Wait, we're a congregation, aren't we? Sure. Congregation, synagogue. For our purposes, it's the same thing. The same tale of the two synagogues, Thessalonica and Berea, has played out over history and it still does today. In all of the centuries, in all of the years, in all of the generations that separate us from the time of Paul, there has constantly been this choice of reactions. Some react nobly and some do not react nobly at all. Some are threatened by what is preached, by what is taught, by what is said, by what is spoken. They're just threatened by it. For example, have you ever had someone threatened by something that you have um, you've asked or maybe something that you've said? And when you asked that or when you said that, it stirred people up. I mean, it visibly agitated them. It, it, it might not even be what you said. It might be what they thought you said. And as you're thinking about that, if your answer is, yes, I have had that experience, you might also be wondering, well, what do I do? Well, the answer is clear. Be noble. Be noble. Be gracious. The the, the thing that you should be focused on most of all is, was what I said true? And was what I said appropriate? I mean, there's a lot of truths that, that, you know, I remember once trying to teach some young people many years ago, many, many years ago, trying to teach them, you know, we should speak openly and honestly to each other. And so some of the young people started going around saying, you know what, I don't like you and you got a bad haircut. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. That's not what we're talking about. You know, it doesn't give you the right and the privilege to insult people. I mean, you still have to be appropriate. You have to be gracious. But let's be honest, you know, when the time is appropriate. So you ask yourself in those situations, 
when somebody was threatened or upset by what you said, were you appropriate? If you weren't appropriate, then own up to that. And did you say something that was true? If you said what was true, then let the truth stand on its own. But hey, you know, I've been working with churches long enough, I know sometimes you have to kind of flip this uh, little lesson over, okay? And let me ask you this. Have you ever been the one who was so threatened by something that someone said that what you heard made you go to someone else and say, you will not believe what I just heard. This upsets me, this offends me, that these people would dare speak such a thing. Well, maybe it's even stirred other people up and made them get very anxious and upset. I want to tell you as respectfully as possible that that's not noble behavior. To do so is just being fearful. In fact, it's even sinful. I will give you Galatians 5.21 and 2 Corinthians 12.20 to consider. The sin of the Thessalonians is jealousy, which is mentioned in those Scriptures. Outbursts. Slander. Let me suggest an alternative. That should you hear something that makes you anxious or threatened in your life, don't spread the virus. You know, we're often told as little kids that if you're sick, don't come to school. I'm running 103 fever. I'm sneezing all over the place. I have strangely colored fluids coming out of my nose. I think I'm going to go to school. No! Stay home. We're even told to cover our mouths when we cough. Well, if you've got the fear virus, cover your mouth, okay? Now, I'll give you an exception where it might be appropriate to go and talk to someone. If you've got a trusted friend, or if you know of a trusted leader, if you know of an elder, if you know of a minister, go to them and say, I want to get this out and talk about it here in a safe environment because maybe I need to cool down and just let this one go. That could be noble. That may be noble especially if you're that humble to trust in the counsel of others. But eventually, we need to settle things down. Do what Jesus said. Deal with each other with respect. And along the way, if we do that, we will be noble like the Bereans. Of course, I want you to know right now, this is about more than just getting along. I want you to to know something else too. This is not an indirect message okay this is not something i'm not talking about something specific if this message is bothering you and say i know what he's talking about he's thinking about something that i've done let me just say that that could be god working on you and i want you to consider that i don't say any of this to your harm or to your shame but because i want all of us to be accountable to god i'm i'm subject to that judgment myself as well but listen i'm not talking about i'm not talking around some specific topic okay Please don't hear that. Well, how do we know you're not? Because if I were, I wouldn't talk around it. I'd probably just jump right in the middle of it, okay? And say it. This teaching has been true today, and it has been true ever since the first century, okay? This is a teaching that is appropriate for all times because the focus is on the kind of open-minded nobility that the Bereans had. But once again, it's about more than just us getting along. This is really about spiritual growth. 
Because when you come back to the things that are core, when you come back to the things that are so important, we need to ask some questions. How do we react? How do you react to the news about the Messiah? I'm afraid sometimes we've become so familiar with Jesus and what that means that maybe maybe we do need to understand how the message of Christ could be threatening to some. He basically says you're no longer in charge, that you have to surrender to the King. You have to surrender to the Messiah. But when we stop and consider that, then it becomes news again. I'm afraid that sometimes the good news isn't good news for us anymore. We've become so familiar with it that it's good olds. Nobody wants to hear olds. We're interested in news. But the good news is news. And it's news to us every time we hear it because it always meets us at a new place in our life. And it gives us possibilities we would never imagine. The Word is a living Word. And it is a sharp Word. And it cuts like a sword. And it can convict. And so when we stop and we take all of our fears, all of our concerns, all of our worries, even all of our concerns and fears as people and as a church, and when we put them in perspective against the news that Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross for our sins and was buried, who was risen from the dead, and is now exalted, do you see how that could convict and correct and change all of our perspectives? How about this synagogue? How do we react to the good news of the Messiah? Like anxious Thessalonians or like noble Bereans? Another question to ask is, are we noble? Which means open-minded, receptive. Are we receptive to what God can do in our lives? Or do we like to keep the Spirit of God in a box? And believe that we can control it and we can manipulate it? Do we become so arrogant as to think that God can't move us and direct us in different ways? When the Spirit of God directed Paul, he was told, you're going to suffer much for this. Not because God is mean and getting back to him, but because he's saying this is going to be tough work. It's not always easy. And I think the Bereans understood that this could get them into a lot of conflict, but they were willing for the risk because they were open-minded, they were receptive enough that they could understand that. I preach because I'm convinced that the truth will win out. Are we that convinced? Because if the truth is somehow not going to win out, then why do we waste our time? We have to understand that in the light of the truth, that in the gravity of the weightier matters of the gospel, many of the things that we consider sacred, many of the things that we cherish that may not be weightier matters, that that may not be very sacred, that may just be our own personal preferences, all of those things are going to be held at a lesser degree than the gospel. And we have to be so open as to accept that reality. We have to be open to accept that possibility. God's truth, the gospel, it does not change. Big $10 word for that is it's immutable. It does not change. But our understandings, they change. Because we go through life and we understand things anew. Paul's letters, keep in mind, 
Paul's letters that he wrote, things like 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, many of these were written to churches who were trying to change their understanding of the gospel. They were Christians. They were believers. They followed Christ. But they were on the way to learning and getting it. That ought to comfort us. To say that any... I'm afraid that sometimes we bear the burden and the anxiety to think that at any given second in all of the universe, if we don't have all of the switches on truth set in the proper position and know everything that we're supposed to know, that somehow we're always accountable. God has the truth. We just have to be noble enough to say, I'll submit myself to it. The restoration movement of which churches of Christ, and if you don't know anything about this, don't worry about it. But for those of you who do, the restoration movement in the United States was founded on noble principles. Principles and ideas that we could discover the truth, that we could learn the truth, that the truth was out there to be discovered and understood by those. That, it was, that just like Paul, you could lay it out. And I think that some of those founders, and I don't know, I can't talk to many of them because they're dead, but I have to believe, having read their writings, that if they ever thought that a day would come when everybody would say, hey, what was settled back then 200 years ago, don't anybody ever question it ever again. They would be up in arms about such a statement. That they would want every generation to say, no, discover it again, embrace it for yourself. The formula that says that doing so means that everything's going to have to change is not so. Some things get reaffirmed. You you re-embrace things. Yeah. You accept them again. Some things, our eyes get opened. And we learn, wait a second. I guess that wasn't on the list like we thought. It's a learning process. But the truth of God wins out. We have to be noble. Now, I know that when you talk about being open-minded, there's always that statement. And I've heard it my whole life. Hey, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. I like to think I'm open-minded, and so far, none of my brains have fallen out. Um, it'd be quite a mess. Uh, first of all, let me, let me react to that little statement. I get what the point is. Being so open-minded that your brains fall out, meaning that you just accept whatever anybody tells you, that's not open-minded. That's just being naive or stupid or lazy. If you're lazy, then it's like, hey, whatever makes everybody happy, I'm all for it. And people just accept it. That's not open-minded. That's lazy. Secondly, those who go with the flow, those who just get lazy and just accept what is already out there, they're not the open-minded. They're actually the zealots. I mean, when we examine Scriptures eagerly, we are saying to ourselves that we believe that the Word of God can create in us new life that we believe that the living that the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and so when we spend time in our worship coming together around god's word when we spend time in our bible studies when we spend time talking to each other around god's word you know what we're doing we're testing one another we're we're strengthening one another it is iron sharpening iron we are striving to be more like christ but if we just defend what we think we already know, then we become zealots. We become zealots who never ask a question. 
and don't dare tolerate anyone who asks a question. And we become like those Thessalonians who are not noble at all, but they react in fear. Now I ask you, of the Thessalonians and the Bereans, who was open to the good news of God? You know, sometimes, and I don't mean to cast everybody who is fearful as a villain. That's not my goal here. Sometimes the fear is might be a fear we've inherited. It might be a fear that we put on ourselves. It might even be the voice of the accuser speaking to us. Oh, the devil has many tricks. And one of those is he's going to accuse you and he's going to make you think that God's Word cannot change you where you're at and that you will always stand condemned no matter what. You need to know that that's the voice of the devil. And you need to know that that's the voice of the accuser trying to keep you out of God's favor. Don't let it remain that way. Open yourself up. Be noble. Examine the Scriptures. Open yourself up to the Word of God that is being preached to you. If you're, if you're fearful and worried and afraid of, of everything and, and, you're, and you're, just, you're just so anxious and nervous, turn it over to God. He's in charge. This is His church. This is His kingdom. We all need to let Him run it. And we need to bow down and follow Him. So, when we stand and sing this song, what we're doing is we are listening to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to lead noble lives. To understand and respond to the Word of God. That there is a Messiah. It's good news. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. And He's exalted. Let me ask you, synagogue. Let me ask you, congregation. How will you respond to that today? Let's stand. Let's sing together.